Let's pray once more. Our God and our Father, we have sang truths that are, I think for all of us, at some level, too good to believe. They're too good to be true. Too good to be true that no matter what we have done, though our sins may be many, no matter what they are, that your mercy is more. If we were devising a God, we would not have devised a God as good as you are. We would have had strings attached. But here you are. Here you are in your magnificent mercy and your amazing grace. Here you are. Here you are in your word before us today. So I ask, I ask that you would fill me with your spirit and fill this moment. Would you continue to fill our moments with your spirit such that each one of us here today would not just hear about you, Lord Jesus, but that we would hear you, Lord Jesus. Will you please speak now through your word, by your spirit, for the sake of your name. For the sake of your name, I ask this. Amen. Psalm 23 is for all of life, not just for the end of life. The reason is what David says in verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. David can look into the future with a, with a confidence, a confidence born out of great privilege. This great privilege is of being anointed by God, and therefore, verse 5, God causing his cup to overflow. As we have in the prior weeks, we will again today ask ourselves, once we've understood the passage, we will ask ourselves, how can I get into this place of such confidence, such privilege that David possesses? But then there's another great obstacle to understanding and applying this psalm. As we begin to understand it and we begin to believe it and apply it to ourselves, what David is saying, we, once we're able to stand in his place, we must face the fact that so often in life, Life does not look this way. Life looks hard. Life is full of sorrow and pain so often. Christian history and your own experience with your own eyes tells you this. So is what David is saying here, is, is it just wishful thinking? Is it just the kind of thing that religious people say to themselves to make themselves feel better? Or is there something deeper going on here? Well, I'm, I'm convinced it's the, the latter. It's the second one. That David is tapping into a truth here that only true Christians possess and a truth that can give us joyful, restful endurance through any valley, even valleys darkened by the most evil of enemies. So I want to look at this passage today. I just want to look at what it says, and then I want to consider the, a couple difficulties about what it's saying, and then I want to apply it to ourselves. So first... The passage itself. Indeed, God's people have enemies, David says in verse 5, but that does not mean that God takes away those enemies. God does not promise to do that. Instead, David says, God, Yahweh, serves me the finest of meals in the presence of my enemies. 
This is because God wants to save some of those enemies. So he blesses David that in their jealousy of David's privilege that they would come to share in his privilege and blessing. Thus David's privilege is not something to be apologized for or surrendered. David is to enjoy his privilege to the full, in full view of watching of his watching enemies. And so now, now in Psalm 23 and verse 6, David publicly exults. He exults. He's, he's, he's publicly thrilled about the full measure of his privilege and his blessing. Verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Do you notice how absolute these words are? Absolute. Let's start with the word surely. The original word functions like like an exclamation point at the beginning of the sentence. It means certainty, certainty, but it also means nothing less than. You could very easily translate this sentence as, nothing less than goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Goodness and mercy. Goodness here, the word goodness carries with it a lot of overlap with the New Testament concept of grace. Goodness being a gift, gift of all kinds, simply given to the recipient. Goodness in, in every area of life, we, we would maybe call this prosperity. Prosperity. God gives it. God gives it overflowingly to David. And then mercy, the word mercy. Now, with this word, we, we are now coming into and, and coming upon one of the most important words, maybe the most important word, besides the word Yahweh, the most important word that you could ever learn from the Hebrew language. Um, though I, I study the original languages in, in before and in preparation for sermons, I, I don't usually mention the original word in the original language because I never want you to feel like, unless I've learned the original languages, I can't understand God's word. You, you, you should have great confidence in your English translation. It's good. There's, it is enough. So I, I don't usually mention it, but I'm going to break that rule here today. The, the original Hebrew word here is the word chesed, chesed. And though I prefer the ESV translation, I don't have a good answer for why this word is translated mercy here and is only footnoted as steadfast love. That's because the core meaning of this word is, and I think there's a slide for this, unfailing kindness, devotion, in other words, a love or affection that is steadfast based on a prior relationship. Unfailing kindness. Devotion, a love or affection that is steadfast, unending, unchanging, based on a prior relationship. Okay, so what was the prior relationship for David? After all, as we we heard last week, David was the, the black sheep. David did not deserve anything, and yet God chose him and anointed him, verse 5, all by God's free choice, all by grace. David was just out there tending sheep. His own father didn't even want him to be involved. <laughs> um, but, but that's how David, that's how God gets glory from David's life by lavishing his favor or grace upon such an undeserving recipient. Which is exactly God's relationship with all of his people, evidenced by what happened on Mount Sinai. You, you remember that Moses had to go up again with a second set of tablets 
after the whole golden calf debacle in Exodus 34, and there God reiterated his covenant with his people, yet before God gives any law, he proclaims himself to Moses, and he says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and then repeated twice, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, both places, hesed, for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will know by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? So at the heart of this, at the heart of God's heart, is Hesed, steadfast love to his own. Steadfast love. And God chose Israel and entered into a relationship with him for the exact same reason and non-reason that he chose David. Later on, uh, Moses would say to the people in Deuteronomy 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord, that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord, Yahweh, loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why does God love them? Because he loves them. (laughs) That's why. Why does God love anybody? Because he loves them. Because of grace. All by grace. And with Israel, because of his prior relationship, his promise to Abraham. But again, we could back that up one more click. Why did he choose Abraham? Because he chose Abraham. (laughs) Why did he love Abraham? Because he loved Abraham. God's free, sovereign grace. God's undeserved favor, which enters a person into a new relationship with God. And that relationship is one of steadfast, unfailing kindness, steadfast love that, that never ends, that never stops. Israel and David are now God's anointed sons, privileged to enjoy un, the blessing of unending kindness from God's hand. And thus it is God's joy to make his son's cup overflow. And so David exults, he exults that goodness and chesed will follow him all the days of his life. David is certain of it and certain of its constancy going into the future. He's certain of it. Did you know that this is what faith looks like? Faith is, faith is seeing something that you cannot see. Faith is hoping in something that you cannot see, says Hebrews David has faith in what God says, that his his love will be constant. And more than that, more than that, it says that that God's hesed will follow him all the days of his life. God's hesed will hunt and pursue and run David down. David may run in the future, but God's steadfast love will run faster and harder. God is now tightly wound on a hair trigger to let loose the hounds of heaven. And the names of those two hounds who will constantly and forever hunt David down are named mercy and goodness. God's steadfast love, his chesed. God will forever dispense kindness and devotion upon David. Why David? Because. <laughs> God's answer. Because. Because I chose to. I love because I love so David now expects with certainty that God will love him steadfastly all the days of his life. 
He exults in this. Now, I, I want to consider three questions of this passage. Again, the, the first question that we should ask is, that's, that's awesome for David. <laughs> how, do, how do I get in there? How, how do I get in this psalm? How do I get into this special relationship? Well, the Bible will later prophesy that another David will rise from the line of Jesse, Jesse being David's father, who couldn't be brought to bring David to the anointing ceremony. From the line of Jesse, uh, Isaiah, this is, excuse me, this is Isaiah 11.10. I, I believe there's a slide, but if there's not, it's Isaiah 11.10. That in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The New Testament tells us that Jesus descended from David, and Jesus would reign as a king, but in the most ironic of places, on a Roman cross with a crown of thorns jammed into his head. But three days later, Jesus would walk out of his tomb, making his resting place glorious. Jesus' cross was God's signal, not just to the Jews, but to all the peoples of the earth. Come, come receive grace. Come enter into this special relationship that David enjoyed and now, now rests upon my son, my, my true anointed son, the greater David, my son Jesus. He now, I, all my approval rests upon him. The, the proof is that I raised him from the dead. So come, come to him. Come freely. Come, as we just sang, with your hands empty. I love the irony of that, of that line. My hands empty, I rejoice. Before this God... The cross is a signal, come and enjoy this. Come be forgiven of all of your sins because Jesus paid for them in your place on his cross. Come be washed, come be free, come be forgiven. And yet the cross was more than a signal to just come and enjoy forgiveness, but to come and enjoy the smile of God. Come and, and become not just someone who's like, like uh, let off from your crime, but you're still a dirty criminal, you creep. No, no, no. The, the cross and the empty tune are a signal to, to come, come and be forgiven, but more than forgiven, come and, and be treated, come and be welcomed into the very throne room of God as if you had never sinned in the first place. In other words, as if you are God's own son. As if you are God's anointed son. That's what Jesus provides for you, for, for all who are in Jesus, who are with him. Well, how does someone get with Jesus? How does someone get in him? It is by faith. By faith. By faith alone. Because, well, it's by faith because Jesus does all of it. All that God demands of people, God provides for people in his son. So what is there left to do but have faith in his son. So does faith. Come trusting in Jesus. Come trusting in Jesus. If you would, then anyone, no matter your sins, may enter into this new relationship with God, the same relationship that David had, with the same expectation of faith that goodness and mercy sh shall not just like show up now and then, 
when God gets around to it. No, mercy and goodness will hunt me down like the hounds of heaven, no matter where I go, every day, for the rest of my existence. <laughs> this is why we call it the gospel. The gospel being like a, you know, an anglicized word of a German word that means good news. It's good news. Good news. The privilege of David may be yours. So, uh, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, trust in Jesus. <laughs> We're not being an emotional manipulation around here. Just, you know, the, no big, you know, uh, emotional songs or anything. Trust in Jesus. Trust in him. Um, because... This is the life you were always meant to lead. This is, this is the life that you were always designed for. And, and, and the other good news, the other bit of the good news that is, that is amazing for, for you, Christian, th think about this. Now, on the other side of, of the cross, we now have more evidence of God's steadfast love, his hesed, Resting upon us, hunting us down. We have more evidence now of that than David did. David just had Samuel the prophet coming up and, you know, anointing him with oil or whatever, whatever Samuel did. Yeah, this is the one, this is him, oil. We have a cross that's empty, bloody, gory, and empty. We have a tomb that's dark and cold and empty. We have even more vivid evidence than David had of God's chesed resting upon us forever and ever and ever. It's as if God has put his own reputation on the line with you, Christian. I, I'm going to, if I if put it this way, I'm going to risk my own glory by, by betting my whole reputation on the line, by fulfilling my promise to you and demonstrating to the whole world that my love will never leave you nor forsake you. So, it, it's amazing grace. That's why we call it amazing grace. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Now, the, as I said before, there's, there's two ditches we need to consider about this. The, the, first is, the first is concluding, well, if God's love to me is steadfast, like always, like no matter what, then I can just do whatever I want. He'll forgive me, right? <laughs> I laugh because to, to which Paul says in Romans 6, no way. You, you, like, you, what? You haven't heard anything I've said so far in the book of Romans. Paul says in Romans 2, uh, chapter 6, verse 2, no way, not even close. Because whenever God's steadfast love actually comes by grace upon a person, it, it, it meets us where we are. God's love always meets us where we are in whatever sin we are in at that time, but it never leaves us where we are. God's steadfast love always transforms. Maybe slowly, maybe quickly, but it never leaves us where we are. God is very content to go with us at a human pace. He's very patient, but he's steadfast, and his love, because his love is steadfast, it never leaves us where we are. It transforms us. You, you, David no longer possessed the identity, as we just sang earlier, no, no longer possessed the identity of a black sheep. He was now 
king. He was now anointed. His identity had changed, and the same goes for you. When Jesus died and went into the grave, so did your old self, Christian. You died. You died with him. And when he came out of the grave, glorified anew, so did you. So did you. That's true about you. So what Paul is essentially saying in Romans 6 is, whatever relationship, I'll put it this way, what relationship does the grave have with a resurrected person? And God's love, his steadfast love resurrects us and it sets us on a new path of new life. We were once a thorn bush, but God is now, we've been born again. We're, We're now like an orange tree and orange trees produce oranges. Maybe one, maybe a lot, but we're no longer that thorn bush. So that's the first ditch. God's steadfast love always transforms us. It meets us where we're at, but it never leaves us where we're at. The second ditch the second involves the question of, that I've already anticipated, what about all the pain in this world, even for Christians? Sometimes it seems that when you become a Christian, I mean, truth in advertising here, life might get harder. Ask persecuted peoples in, in, in largely Islamic countries or uh, in other countries. Um, sometimes life gets really hard to the death. We groan. Romans 8, Romans 8, 26, we groan. That's why the Spirit has to, has to groan with us to pray on our behalf to the Father. We, we groan, just like in Romans 8, verse 22, just like creation groans. So what is this prosperity, this goodness that David speaks of? Again, is it a, is it a, a made-up thing? Is this, just, is this just words? Well, no, no. But, but Paul explains this in Romans 8, verse 28. Romans 8, verse 28, which I'm going to read here. And we know, we know that for those who love God, who love God because he loved us first, for those who love God, all things work together for good, goodness, for those who are called according to his purpose. For God's children, for those who love him because he loved them first, God causes all things all the time to work together to bring us the goodness that God promises us, that David exulted in, that David could take uh, confidence in, that would always follow him. So what are these things? What what are these things that God causes to, to work for the good, even the things that make us groan? Even the things that make us groan. Just as God did with Jesus, so he does with us. Sometimes God cloaks his goodness in the most ugly and painful of packages. Sometimes God delivers his goodness through the most terrible of messengers. So what shall we say to this? What shall we say to this? We exult, Paul says, right along with David in Romans 8, 31 and 32. I'm just going to keep reading from verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified or made to stand right before God. 
he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, those who are justified, their, glor- their future glorification is as good as done. So what's the result of that? What then shall we say to these things? Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then verse 32, truth to bet your entire life on. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. There's the proof. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So what does Paul mean by this, all things? What Paul means is that God will use all things and so ordain and arrange them to bring us the good that he has promised. Even the things that make us groan. God causes them to bring us the greatest and deepest good. God transforms, and the cross is the proof. God transforms even the worst evils into chesed, steadfast love. Now, there are three things practically that I want to say about this. Um, The first is because it's a lot easier to get up and preach this than to believe it. (laughs) On this subject, right now, I'm doing the easiest thing, talking about it. Because we cannot see this. We cannot see the goodness when it is wrapped in something as awful as death, pain, unending illness. We are often Job struck and stuck in the middle of groaning. So then, just as we are saved by faith, God calls us to walk by faith. To walk by faith, faith in God, that he is a God of hesed, Faith believes what it cannot see. And this is work. This takes work. It's hard. It takes courageous work to to take hold of your pains, to take hold of your fears and your feelings, and and feelings that that may go down deep where where you wonder, are are my bones literally rattling because of how I feel (laughs) that deep? It's hard, it's courageous work to take those pains and those fears and then then take Romans 8.32 and preach to them this truth. But that is the courageous work of faith. This is why Jesus said in John 6, verse 29, Jesus answered him, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is our primary work now. To believe, to believe, to believe that wrapped in the most awful of packages, even in this, God is bringing me, has said. So the first application of any sermon, the, the core work that we are to do is to courageously preach to ourselves the rest of Romans 8 and then to believe it. So let me, let me preach it to myself here as I preach it. To you, I'm going to begin reading in Romans 8, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who was at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us right now. Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or a political party or a cancer or a divorce or a particular sin? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That is not the prosperity gospel right there. That sounds more like Job. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure... David is just, or Paul's just channeling David here. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor even angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you take this and you say, that's awesome in church. That's great. And then on Tuesday morning, when you wake up <laughs> and all of your fears and anxieties, you wake up and they're all like looking at you, you know, the, in your first waking moments. And they're all like scowling at you and reminding you of, of your worries, you do the work, you do the work of a Christian there. And in their face, in the presence of your enemies, you eat of this meal again. The meal of God's love for you. And by, and by the way, I preach this to you like, I, I'm like down in the chair somewhere with you, listening to my own sermon right now. Okay? I, I need this. If you do, I'm right there with you. And I know that you do because I know how much I do. This, this is the application of every sermon of the whole Bible. This is the work. This is the work. So then, number two, number two, we should expect to see as we do this, we should expect to see a work within us, a work of fruit, a work of change, a work of transformation, a work of freedom from long-standing sins and errors. Because when God's love, when it's truly apprehended and when we, when we feast upon it, it, it transforms us, it trains us, Titus 2.12, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and to walk in new ways, to walk in Jesus' resurrection. God's love changes 
us. It never leaves us where we're at. So, so you know those triggers in your life. Those triggers that, well, maybe you don't, but you have them. Triggers in your life that for whatever reason, and they may be weird. But they may, we all have weird triggers. We all have traumas from the past. We all have, we all have weird stuff. And for whatever weird reason, those triggers cause you to sin. Um, whatever they are for you, expect God to do some good work there in those odd places as you preach his steadfast love to yourself day by day and then take concrete steps in belief and faith where you take a, a, a little courageous step that you didn't take yesterday because you, you, you preached to yourself and you believed it and you take that small little step to actually live it out. Expect God to do some tremendous, awesome work there. God's love always transforms us. Christianity is not going to Bible studies. I mean, study your Bible. But the end of Christianity is not to go to Bible studies. Christianity is taking hold of the truth of God's chesed and then living it out with shoe leather. <clears throat> so you should expect, as, as, you, as you preach this gospel to yourself, you should expect a new courage to appear within you. So like, you know, buckle your belt. Get ready. You should expect a, a new willingness to take risks within you as you believe and come to know that wherever you go, whatever room you walk into, God's goodness and chesed will follow you into that situation. As you understand more and more that you are pursued by the hounds of heaven, you will experience new freedom to take steps out of yourself and you'll wonder, who, who is this person doing this? It's the new you. It's actually the real you. But labor there too. When, when God shows you, get, get behind God and, and, and take steps, take steps of faith that God is working. Well, then number three, freedoms fight. Freedoms fight. This courage and this freedom will inevitably move you out from yourself to your world, to the larger world. It's, it can't help but do this because free people want to free people. Free people want to share it. It's contagious. And so we have enemies. David has enemies. We have enemies. David had very real enemies. We have very real enemies. It does the, the modern church no good to pretend that this is not true. To, to pretend and, and, and instead of facing these enemies, facing the realities of the enemies and, and doing something towards them, it does us no good to placate God's enemies and to put on a, a dog and pony show to try to entertain God's enemies. No, no, no. That there are enemies in this world that we face. Those enemies are primarily the world, our flesh, and the devil. To hear some Christians talk, uh, our enemies are, you know, like, depending on your political persuasion, um, the devil and the Democrats. <laughs> but, but, or, or the Republicans. But, but, but that, gives, that gives either one too, too much credence, too, too much cred. Um, our real enemies go deeper than those things. For instance, when the devil works, the devil finds uh, lots of material to work with within our own flesh. 
And so the importance of the transformation that I was just talking about is, is necessary. But then there is the world and the system of this world that goes deeper than any political party, whether red or blue. The, the enemies of God's people today, the enemies of God, want to relieve God of his place of being in charge of reality itself. They believe that they are the anointed and in their self-anointed state that they have a new vision of reality. Thus, they want to redefine everything, even the dictionary itself. And as they stand in the place of God, their experiments in redefining reality result in the wreckage that you see all around us in our culture. But we do not fight with our enemy's weapons. We now fight with truth, unabashed, unapologetic truth. But we are not just based we are not just more in touch with reality than whoever. For we only know reality because we've been hunted down by the hounds of heaven ourselves. We only know reality because we've come to know the creator of reality. Thus, we preach the inventor and the sustainer of reality, Jesus, Yahweh, crucified, risen from the dead, ascended, and now reigning. He is the king over all reality. He reigns not just over people and nations, but over gravity and the second law of thermodynamics and the nature of gender and why milk curdles and bird migration and tax policy and the way of a young man with a woman. He reigns over all reality. He is the king over it all. And this he proved by his resurrection from the dead. So we're, it's not that we're, it's not that we're just truth-tellers. Yes, we are not liars, but we are also not those who are very based, but very dour and self-serious. We're not those ones either. We proclaim truth wrapped not in awfulness, not in meanness, but in a confident joy and exultation. We fight by eating from a table set before us in the presence of our enemies. We fight by eating and drinking with jolliness, this is why Jeremiah said the joy of the Lord is our strength that our enemies at first would seethe with envy and jealousy at our privilege. And then when they're spent all of their energy doing that, we hope that they'll ask whether they could have a bite of our meal too. And we will say, of course. For what do we have that has not come from God's gracious, steadfastly loving hand? <laughs> this meal was just made by the hounds of heaven his goodness and mercy. Join in. Join in. So, Christian, we have before us, we have before us the greatest of privileges, the steadfast love of God that will never leave us nor forsake us. It will never leave us nor forsake us. And this is the object of our faith that we would believe with faith that it is now come in Christ, that it has come, that it meets us today, and that it will forever meet us tomorrow. And the ever-arriving present, that that ever-arriving present now comes filled with God's goodness and mercy. This is the fight of faith, to believe this, to walk in this. And by the joy that we will experience as we walk by faith in this work of faith, this, this joy is the strength that will overcome the whole world. 
This joy is, is the strongest and greatest of weapons. When we come together to worship on Sundays, we, we are not just singing songs and praise to God. We are not just worshiping Him. Oh, we are. We are worshiping Him. But our joy that we express is doing battle against the darkness, the, the dour depression of our age. We, when we come together on Sundays, we are feasting on this meal. And when we feast, we are inviting the nations to come and say, please join with us. Yes, get jealous of what we have. And then after you're done being jealous, come. After you're done hating, join, feast, rest, rest. You've been promised, Christian, and the proof of God's promise is the cross that he will never leave you nor forsake you, no matter what. If you are in Christ by faith, then you stand in the privileged place of David. Truly and surely, his goodness and mercy will follow you in all things. In everything that makes up your existence, in all things, his goodness and mercy are right now and will follow you all the rest of your days right on through death, forever and ever and ever and ever, world without end. Amen. In this we rejoice, and in this we rest, and in this we live. So let's pray now. Let's pray for faith to believe this. Oh God, I pray that you would grant us faith. I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe, grant me the favor of yet still more faith and do that for all of us, please. Fill us with your spirit. Grant us your enabling to do the work of faith, to believe what you have said, to see past what we see with our eyes, to see with the eyes of faith your hesed that is steadfast, that never leaves us nor forsakes us. Will you do this? Will you strengthen us in yourself, please? I pray this for your name, for the sake of your name amongst us here, and for the sake of your name among the nations here where we live. In Jesus' name, amen. And Christian, you are what God says you are. You are his anointed child, the recipient of his unending, unfailing kindness and steadfast love. Go rejoicing in that and resting in it. Amen.